but we are in John 4, loving going through this evangelistic gospel. We're going to have an incredible uh, evangelism encounter of Jesus here with a woman of Samaria, the woman at the well. And uh, before we get into it, let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we are thankful to be together as a family. It's so refreshing uh, to even come to this home that you've given us, a place to gather in fellowship, uh, to be with one another, to uh, spur one another on and encourage one another, to use our gifts and build one another up. Um, Lord, uh, we know that you have designed us as sheep of a flock to be a part of this fold. And, and so, Lord, just let us all minister to one another today. Minister to us today by your word. Spur us on to be evangelists. But, Lord, if there's anyone here today who has been drinking of some stagnant, filthy pond scum water today, and today they need to drink of Jesus and take the water of life freely, we pray today you would be just moving in their hearts to respond to your, your gentle calling. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys want to look at John chapter 4 with me? It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Therefore, being wearied from his journey, he sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So last week we looked in chapter 3 about how Jesus was baptizing people who were following him. Uh, chapter 4 tells us it actually wasn't Jesus who was baptizing, it was his disciples that were doing it. Last week in chapter 3, we saw that there was a little bit of controversy between the disciples of John and the disciples, you know, they were a little jealous that Jesus was baptizing. What's up with that? That's kind of our gig, isn't it, John? And, uh, and John had just this incredible just exhortation of humility that Jesus is the Messiah. He's come to save the world. He must increase. I must decrease. Listen to last week's study if you have had a chance to do that because it leads in to chapter 4. But perhaps there was a little, it was F.F. Bruce that said, Jesus would have never wanted there to be any schism between John the Baptist's ministry and his ministry. And so maybe that was what pushed him to go north into uh, the area of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, We got some maps here for you, if Russell will pop those up. uh, Some geography, and we need a little bit of a geography lesson. We got those maps, Ro? It's going to be helpful for us today. All right, so uh, Jesus has been down in the south in the region of Judea. Uh, John the Baptist was ministering a little bit more north around the area of Jericho. And uh, that's about what we were reading in chapter three. In chapter three. Now in chapter four, uh, we see Jesus, you know, he's like, man, it's time to go up and minister up north in that area where the Sea of Galilee is, okay? Um, now, Samaria lies between Judea and Galilee. It's this 
interesting area. We're going to get into some history on it in just a little because it's important in the context and what we're understanding, what's going to happen unfold there. But uh, hop to that next map, Russell, because there were a few different towns that were mentioned, such as Sychar and this area. You can actually Google Earth it if you've got that app on your phone, and it's really cool because you can just zoom right on in and see pretty much the exact place that we're uh, that we're talking at here. So uh, just Samaria, it's up north, essentially. Judea is down south, but Jesus is on his way. And it says actually there in verse 4 that he needed to go through Samaria. Uh, a little bit of the, uh, if, you know, the highways and the byways of the area. Most Jews would have gone uh, to the east, up by the Jordan River, and would have, you know, skirted around, taken a bypass around Samaria and around Galilee. But for some reason, Jesus said, you know what? I've got to go. It's like the divine will of God right now that I don't take the bypass, but that I head right up through the middle, up through Samaria on my way to Galilee. Why would anyone take a bypass? Why would that be important? We're going to see that in just a minute. There's some good history context but the woman is going to set it up for us, okay? Um, so we see after a three-day journey, he's tired. Uh, part of this journey, you know, probably about the second day into this three-day journey to Galilee, he's tired, it's noon, and he sits down by the well. His disciples go to get some food. And in verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay? Uh, This question from the Samaritan woman to Jesus sets up a bit of the drama that's happening here in chapter 4. You're a Jew, you're talking to me, a Samaritan, strike one, a woman, strike two, and then there's some morality issues in her life that we're going to see in a few verses, which is like three strikes for this woman. And she's asking how this Jewish guy is talking to her, asking for something from her. We don't really talk, okay? Why is that? Hop back to the map again, Russell. And we'll just kind of look at this zoomed out map. Back in the days of King David, Israel was a strong nation. He was a great king. And he had a son named Solomon who would take his throne. Solomon would also be a great king. Solomon would fulfill his father David's vision to build the temple, the house of the Lord, In Jerusalem, it was going to be great. And on King David's deathbed, he says to his son, Solomon, listen to me, man. I've lived this life, and I'm telling you, follow the Lord with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, and it's going to be well with you. But if you turn away after other gods, if you disobey the Lord, if you follow after the lusts of your heart and of your flesh, it's going to be bad. I'm telling you, don't go that route. So King David passes away. King Solomon, of course, listens to the advice of his father like all of us young lads do, to a T, right? Okay? For a while, all right? And during that while, things are great. The nation is prosperous, all right? Uh, The land had so much prosperity 
that to find silver on the ground was like finding pebbles on the ground, okay? I mean, it, it was a good economic time. Uh, Solomon, of course, asked the Lord for wisdom that he might lead God's people. And God loved that Solomon asked for that. And so he gave him tons of wisdom. Everyone loved Solomon. The queen of Sheba comes to ask about, you know, you know, how do you manage this place? How do you do all this? She's impressed. She gives gifts. It's an incredibly prosperous, amazing time until Solomon starts following after the lust of his flesh and the lust of his heart. He starts doing what's right in his own eyes. He starts looking out to fulfill everything that his heart might want, even if the Lord says no. And because of that, the Lord would split the kingdom, okay? The Lord would rip the kingdom out of the, uh, the hands of uh, of really David's line in the way that it was. All right. And so what happens is that the Lord's gracious and he lets Solomon go ahead and live out his days and die. But it would be in Solomon's son's days that that kingdom would split. And so that's what happens. If you read about uh, first and second Kings, it's the story of a kingdom divided. Okay. And it's two different kingdoms, the North and the South. All right. The North is called Israel. And the south is called Judah. The north are ten tribes of Israel, and the south are two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. Okay? And the, the whole story of the kings, it's about 14 kings in each side that just follow after other gods. They do all kinds of horrible things. They don't live for the Lord. They worship other idols. They take the gods of other nations. Um, they have sexual immorality. They offer their children up in fires as sacrifice. It's really sad. It's a really dark time. There's something like three good kings in the mix of it all. But overall, it's just a whole lot of bad kings in these two different nations. Sometimes they'll war against each other, but they're divided um, to say the least. And because both nations, Israel and Judah, uh, would, would worship other gods God finally just raises up prophets who speak to them and call to them to repent of their sin, but they don't repent. So then God raises up other nations to come and discipline them through war, through captivity. And uh, and so first, Assyria comes from the north and captures and carries away Israel. Okay, And then a hundred years later, Judah doesn't learn from Israel's mistakes. They keep worshiping gods. And so Babylon comes and takes Judah away. Okay, Now, when Assyria came and took the north away, they didn't totally take the north away. Okay, Part of their like warfare strategy was to kind of leave some of the people behind but bring in some of their people and mix them up, you know, have relationships together. And in those relationships, they bring other gods in and they just kind of assimilate that culture so that they become Assyria and it would be a mixture of Israeli Assyrian. Okay. Uh, Second Kings chapter 17 tells us that because of that mixture, people had no idea who to worship or what to do. And so something that we read here in 2 Kings 17, 24 is that the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon and Kuth and Ava and Hamath and from Sepharavim and placed them in the cities of Samaria, which was 
were cities up in the northern kingdom of Israel instead of the children of Israel. And they took possessions of Samaria and dwelt in the cities. Okay. Um, what else happened there? It's in uh, verses 32 and 34, I think, that we've got there. Well, let's just go back. Let's go back to 2 Kings 17 because it's kind of crazy what happens. So uh, what were, where were we? 24 and so verse 25. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you've removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore, he sent lions among them. And indeed, they're killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines and the high places and the, that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities where they dwelt. Now, if you just jump down a few verses, 2 Kings seventeen thirty-two. So they feared the Lord. And from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them on the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods. Really, that's like a contradiction in terms. Like, oh, I fear the Lord, but also... Okay, that's essentially... It's a paraphrase. Okay. Um, according to the rituals of the nations from which they were carried away. To this day, they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord... Nor do they follow the statutes of their ordinances or the law and the commands which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. Okay, so you got just this crazy cultural religious thing happening, but it's happening in the land of Israel. And so it would, it would continue that way up to the time of Jesus. Like people don't, Jesus is going to say it in a little bit in John 4, like you guys don't even know what you're doing. You guys don't even know what you're worshiping. Okay. Uh, they, the Samaritans believed in the Pentateuch. And so they kind of look at some old Testament verses about, you know, uh, Bethel and the house of the Lord at that time there. And so they believed that that's where they should worship. But at the same time, they worshiped other gods and there was this mixture. They were kind of, um, inbreeds in the Jews eyes. And so there would just constantly be friction. Now the story continues that, uh, that, that, just mixed group of people would continue living up in the north while in the south the babylonians would be replaced by the medes and the persians and the persians would let israel come would let judah forgive me come back to their land rebuild jerusalem rebuild the wall rebuild the temple and they would come back of course they'd be taken over by the greeks later they'd be taken over by the romans later but essentially they'd kind of have their land back and while they had their land back, that's when Jesus, the Messiah, came. And he comes in in John chapter 4 into this crazy time in Israel's history where Judah is there and they're under Roman rule and Samaria is there and they're under Roman rule and Jesus is just trying to get to the north to Galilee. He could kind of skirt around and miss these, you know, rednecks in the Samaria area. But he decides, you know what? The gospel is for even the Samaritans. I'm going to go right up through there. I'm going to take a pit stop at the local pilot station in Sikar. 
I'm going to get myself a big gulp and a Slim Jim. I'm going to see what the Lord's going to do there. And so here he is. He's hanging out by the gas pumps, right? And out comes, I'm trying to contextualize because you were like, what's a well, you know? And what are they doing out of the water? Okay, so just trying to help you get, I'm teasing. Uh, but so here's this woman and Jesus is there. He's thirsty, asks her for a drink. And she's like, Why are, how are you talking to me? You know, I'm a redneck woman. I ain't no high class broad. I'm just, just a product of my raisin. Say, hey, y'all and yeehaw, you know. Keep my Christmas lights up on my front porch all year long. I know the words to every Randy Travis song. Okay. Only in Prineville can you get away with that, you know. If I was teaching in Portland right now, they'd be like, he is a redneck woman. Okay. You know, she is saying to him essentially that, though. Like, you look like you're from the city, you know. You're from the south. Clearly, you're a Jew. You know, you're a rabbi. You have like a rabbinical appearance. There's something about you. How are you talking to me? But there's, some, there's something in that. Like, how are you talking to me, a Samaritan? And so there's all that history behind that. By the way, I didn't mention that, um, that when Judah came back in and rebuilt their temple, that when the Persians let them come back, there were some Samaritans in the area. You can read about Nehemiah and Ezra chapter 4. There were some Samaritans who were a little confused how they were rebuilding Jerusalem, but they kind of wanted to be a part of it. And so they offered, maybe we could help rebuild. And Nehemiah and Ezra, they forgot the missional heart of God, even for their own people. And they're like, we don't want your help. Crazy rednecks, you know, probably break stuff, you know. And so they snubbed them. And that snub was lasting a couple thousand years later, okay? And so that didn't help. And so when she says, how is it that you, a Jew, talk to me, a Samaritan? That was my first strike. I'm a woman. That's my second strike. Let me get into that for a minute. By the way, I love women. <laughs> you all, I love you all. You love me, we all love each other. Okay, how do you get out of that? Okay. The problem was that the culture of the day, the, the Jewish men had no value for women. Okay? I should have said I value women. <laughs> I also love you, but I value. Okay? <sighs> Wish we had air conditioning in this building because we would turn it on right now. All right? There was no value for women in the Jewish culture. Okay? A Jewish Pharisee would wake up every morning and thank the Lord that he wasn't a dog, a Gentile, or a woman, okay? That was his prayer every morning. Don't adopt that morning prayer, okay? Don't teach that to your children, okay? But Samaritan women were assumed to be in a perpetual state of ceremonial uncleanness. Jewish leaders would codify a law known as Mishanada 4.1 that reflect a long-standing popular sentiment that said something like the daughters of the Samaritans, I'm going to clean it up a little bit, would have their time of month, okay, from the cradle and therefore perpetually be in a state of ceremonial uncleanness. So that was a sentiment of Jewish rabbis towards Samaritan women. Okay, so that's a little bit why is this Samaritan woman so shocked that Jesus is talking to her? 
For a rabbi to engage in conversation, even with a true born Jewish woman, was regarded by many to be a waste of time that could have been more profitably spent. There was a classic comment on a verse that's provided by a rabbi named Jose ben Yohanan. He was from the second century. And he said, prolong not conversations with a woman. Then there was an editorial remark from another rabbi who was extending his words that said to even say, even with your own wife, that is to say, even with one's own wife, how much more with a neighbor's wife? Hence the wise men say, he who prolongs conversation with a woman brings evil upon himself, ceases from the words of the law, and at last inherits Gehenna. Okay, so just just a real distortion of God's value towards women happening among the Jewish men. By the way, wherever the gospel goes, women are valued. Women are liberated. Women are given roles and positions and ministries. It's a wonderful and beautiful thing. The strike three against this lady was that she, as we'll see in a little bit, was with multiple men or had been with multiple men. Now, it's clear as we read this encounter that there's almost a compare and contrast with John chapter 3's dialogue with Nicodemus, with old Nick at night, okay? Uh, Nicodemus was a learned, powerful, respectable, orthodox, theologically trained Jewish man. And this woman, though, as a Samaritan, was unschooled, without influence, despised, capable only of a folk religion. Nicodemus was a man, he was a Jew, he was a ruler. This is a woman, a Samaritan, a moral outcast, and both needed Jesus. Okay? People often think wrongly about their need for Jesus, whether they're a religious man in the night or a non-religious woman in the noonday sun. Both of them needed Jesus. And so Jesus begins to speak with her. He looks for an opportunity to dialogue with her. Put yourself in Jesus's position on a trip through a sketchy neighborhood, stopping at the gas station or something of the sort. And someone comes out and is kind of hanging around where you are. You know, maybe you're at the same big gulp fill up station or something, but you're there Clearly there's an opportunity for discussion. Clearly there's something that separates you culturally maybe, or, you know, there's some difference there. Maybe my people normally wouldn't talk to someone like you. You know, I'm, I'm a country guy with a belt buckle I could eat dinner off of, you know, and you've got piercings all over and your hair's dyed an interesting color and it's spiked up funky. And, you know, I can either just shun you or I can have a conversation with you. And Jesus goes into this having a conversation. Now, we can all read books on evangelism and how to start up conversations with people. There's probably a chapter in one of those books. It's called the, you know, the, the thirsty for water trick or something, you know, where you're kind of like, hey, when was the last time you had something to drink? You know, or something just awkward, you know, like I remember chapter four of that book on evangelism I read in Bible school, you know. But Jesus essentially saw a need and transposed it to the real need, the spiritual need uh, that, that opened up this conversation. I know a guy uh, from California, spent some time in prison. He ended up getting saved in prison. 
and, uh, and becoming an evangelist. When he got out of prison, uh, he, he would just go all over the place talking to people about Jesus. And I was with him one day in a restaurant, and the waitress comes up to take our order. And the first thing he says to her is, are you a saved waitress? <laughs> you know? And she was kind of like, <laughs> you know, choked on her gum, you know, or and, uh, and it wasn't like the best tact per se, but it was, I mean, it was interesting. It was like, wow, this guy is just looking for every opportunity to just talk to people about Jesus. There was another pastor in Lakeview when I was, uh, in high school, he was from another church and we were at the grocery store together and, um, and we were in line and the checker's name was Liberty. And I remember, you know, here I am 17 years old and I'm just in line with this pastor and he just says, Hey, did you know that the Bible says that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is Liberty. And she was like, she's like, I don't even know what that means, you know? And, and he just went into the gospel about freedom and forgiveness and just looking for any opportunity. How can we transition into a conversation about the Lord? And so Jesus answers her and he says in verse 10 if you knew the gift of god and who it was who says to you give me a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water so the first of all he says man if you even knew how much the lord loved you how about opening up with that you're at the big gulp station of the 7-eleven squishy thing you know slushy Slushy. I eat them all the time. It's not like I don't know what they're called. Slurpees. Okay. And it's just like, do you even know the gift of God for you? Do you know how much the Lord loves you? Don't talk to me about people loving me. I don't like that. You know, everyone likes hearing about love towards them. They love themselves a ton. They want to hear more about it. You know, have you ever heard about the love of God towards you? If you even knew the gift of God towards you. And all throughout the scripture, the plan of God towards mankind is defined as a gift of God. The wages of sin is death, that's payment, but the gift of God is eternal life. You read Romans chapter 5 and there's a contrast between Adam and his offense towards God in the garden, but Jesus, the second Adam, and not his offense towards God, but his gift towards mankind and eternal life. God is all about giving gifts to men, saving men and redeeming men. And if you only knew how much God loved you and wanted to give you the gift of eternal life. He also says, if you even knew who was talking to you right now, asking for a drink of water, probably all of us have a situation where we've been in, where we're in a random location and there's a celebrity there and you don't even realize it till they're gone or something, you know? And then all of a sudden it's like, I remember a couple years ago, Gerard Butler rode his motorcycle through Prineville and ate at Tasty Treat. Does anybody remember that? And it was like, after he left, Facebook blew up like, that's who that was. And everyone's like, I was going to eat there, you know? And, and just, oh, they missed it, you know? Uh, it's funny, just this year, Jess Olkers took Johnny's motorcycle to a motorcycle shop in Bend, and there's a guy in the waiting room uh, with her, and she's looking at him, and she's like, I know this guy. Was he our doctor? Was he a doctor of ours? And, uh, and 
I just know him. I, I know who he is. And she, they're kind of like, yeah, hey, you know, who is that guy? You know? And then he schedules to have his motorcycle, and she leaves. And then it dawn, after he leaves, it dawns on her. It's Matthew Fox, Party of Five, you know, Lost, Dr. Shepard, I think, you know. That's why she thought it was maybe my doctor. And she asked the, the guy, was that Matthew Fox? You know? And he's like, I don't even know who that is. You know, Party of Five, Lost, come on, help me out, you know. So she's scheduled to pick the motorcycle up at 10 a.m. on Monday and come back at the same time. Oh, hey, man. Okay. But you all have stories like that, you know, like, oh, I knew it. And that's what's happening here. Savior of the world hanging out at the slushy machine with you, okay? At the well, hanging out there. And if you only knew who, in fact, she's going to talk about the Messiah in a little bit. Like, well, we'll just see what the Messiah has to say about this when he comes back, you know. And he's going to respond, I who am talking to you am he, okay. So if you only knew the gift of God towards you and who is saying to you, give me a drink of water, if you even knew how much I love you and how much I just come to rescue and be a champion for the world, we wouldn't be having this exact dialogue. You would be asking me something else. And what is that? You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He would have given you living water. This is prophetic from the Old Testament. He mentioned it to Nicodemus. How living water is a picture of the Spirit of God coming in and doing a renewing and regenerating work. A soul-satisfying work that springs up in our hearts into everlasting life. He wants to do a fresh work in you today. He wants to do a running supply of his faithfulness in you today. He wants to let you taste of him and see that he is good. He wants you to drink of him and never thirst again. It's prophetic from Zechariah chapter 13 verse 1 that in that day a fountain shall be opened up in the house of David for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness, living water. In a few chapters, we'll get it. And I don't want to do too much of a spoiler alert. I love this passage, John 7, 37. It was on the last day, a great day of the feast, that Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So if you're thirsty... Come to me and drink. Not only will you be satisfied, but you'll actually have the supply come out of your life, out of the inner person, like living water coming out. But all of that, he's, it, there's a, a little commentary for us in John seven thirty nine. He's speaking about the Holy Spirit. Anyone who believes in him would receive for the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet died and risen from the dead and been glorified. You know how it is to be thirsty, just parched, cotton mouth, you know, just so, just give me a goblet of something cool and refreshing, you know. You know how it is, just anything, just, just, just need a little something, you know. Remember when my dad had had a stroke and he wasn't able to swallow 
So he wasn't able to drink. And so his reflex was, you know, uh, he was just desiring that, even though they're hydrating him through the IV. And I would just, you know, I'd have to cotton swab his mouth and kind of like cause like a little, little moisture in there through that. Just, just need some moisture. And Jesus is saying, man, I can do way more than put a little flavored cotton ball in your mouth. You know, I'm going to give you living water just flowing up out of your heart. And so what he's offering and what he's promising to this woman who is at the well by herself living in some moral questioning, questionable moral moment in her life is that I will satisfy you better than anything else in your life could satisfy. For whatever reason, we're going to see she's on husband, she's had five husbands and the one she's living with, she's resorted to cohabitation at this point. For whatever reason, that's never satisfied. That's always been a letdown. Now she's at a place where at noon she's going out and getting her water when normally women would go in the morning when it's cool and they'd go together to protect each other. And, and here she is at noon by herself, possibly avoiding the community where she's ostracized because of her questionable morals. And, and, and Jesus is like, you know what? Quit searching everywhere else. Living water's right here. And uh, it goes on there. In verse 11, the woman says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? So it's kind of like Nicodemus' story, right? You think about that at all? Chapter 3, Jesus is like, Assuredly, I say to you, Nick, if you want to inherit the kingdom, you've got to be born again. And he's thinking on this physical plane of like, born again. Like, how am I supposed to get back up in my mother's womb? You know, this is weird. And Jesus is like, no, no, like, think scripture with me. Think about the new work of the Spirit regenerating you and reviving you. Think about the work of the water of the Spirit satisfying and restoring. And, oh, okay, you know. And here's the same things happening. Like, you've got, I'll give you living water. And like, this is a hundred foot deep well. Grandpa Jacob dug this. You don't even have a bucket. You know. Jesus is like, okie dokie, we're going to have to start. <laughs> Brought my dry erase board. <laughs> okay. Uh, and so the woman, you know, a little bit of confusion there. Maybe she's playing along. Then she goes on and, and says, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock and when you look at the original language and the particles and all that kind of stuff that there's an implication of it is no you're not like you're not better than jacob he dug this this has been in our family forever it survived the assyrian invasion it's come on you know you're not better what's better than jacob's water from this well in verse 13 jesus answers and said to her whoever drinks of this water will thirst again and so he's going to contrast here water from the earthly well that is temporary versus water from the heavenly well, which is long lasting and eternal. And it's a good lesson for us today in 2020 Prineville that physical refreshment on any level or satisfaction that we long for and yearn for here and now on this earth all will fade away. It all will leave us lasting and, and asking for more. 
it all will leave us yearning for something that's eternal. That eternal thing is the life-giving spirit of the living God. That King Solomon was looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. In Ecclesiastes 2.10, something that led to his downfall in our history lesson today that I'm sure you all remember. Oh yeah, Solomon messed it all up. Okay, Ecclesiastes 2.10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works of my hands at then, on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed it was all vanity and grasping for their wind, and there was no profit under the sun. So King Solomon says, you guys, just hear from me, listen to me. I've tried it all, I wanted it all, I went and got it all, and I'm still longing for more. It's all grasping for the wind to be living for the water that does not satisfy. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13, God says that my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me. And I'm the fountain of living waters. And they went and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They forsook me. I'm, I'm, I'm like the most cool and refreshing drink that you could ever have. And I, once you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. But we as sinners, we go after other idols and we hope that they satisfy us. And they're like cracked pots with dust and spider webs inside that we're licking the side of the pot shirt, hoping that there's moisture in it. It will never satisfy Anytime that I pursue anything other than Jesus to satisfy that deep longing in my heart and soul, it's idolatry. Jesus longs for us to come to him first and drink of his wellspring and everything else flows out of our relationship with him in that goodness. Those of you that know World War II history at all, you might remember the USS Indianapolis. The USS Indianapolis later on in the war in 1945 went from San Francisco over to uh, some islands that we had with the atomic bomb. I think like Fat Boy or something was inside her bays. And she made it over there without getting hit by a Japanese submarine. And then as she left the drop-off point, uh, she wasn't zigzagging very good to avoid Japanese submarine detection. And she ended up getting hit by, um, by a torpedo. And going down, and nobody knew where she was in the water. And so all of the sailors were floating in the open ocean for something like five days. If they didn't die in the explosion, if they didn't die in the sinking, they were floating out there for five days. They were being eaten by sharks. It's just famous for being just this horrible shark attack for five days, just constantly just taking guys down. But while the men were out on the life rafts and in their life preservers, they would get so parched and so thirsty that they'd start drinking the salt water, which only made their thirst worse and would cause hysteria and craziness. And in the books that I've read about it, yes, I said books, plural, interesting story, uh, men would say that they see the ship down below and it's actually doing well down there and there's people alive down there and, and there's water fountains that are just pouring out fresh water and they would begin, they would strip off their life jackets and they would swim down underwater and they would try to get down to the ship and they would either suffocate or get taken away by a shark. And, and it's just a horrible tragedy. And, uh, but it's a picture of us 
and all of our longings. We're drinking salt water. We're trying to strive for something else. And you guys, I don't need to get into like, maybe for you it's this or that or her or him or here or there or this taste or that, you know, whatever. You know exactly what it is. You know what your propensity towards sin is. You know what right now you're like, I can't wait till this all is over so I can go watch NASCAR on NBC, you know. It's like, I get it. But NASCAR's been canceled because of COVID, so you're going to have to wait, okay? I get it. I'm just a man like you. It takes one to know one. I know what we're longing for, but it doesn't satisfy. And you're drinking sand and you're licking the dirt when Jesus is here offering living water in which you'll never thirst again. C.S. Lewis called this an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. In fact, that craving, once you lick of it or drink of it, it only increases for more of that even though it it doesn't return the way that you want it to return. And Jesus says in verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. God wants to do a work in us where we're not longing after physical pleasures that are only temporary. He wants to give us himself to where we just have a bubbling over of life and strength and mission and hope and love and light. It never ends. We'll never thirst again. And so verse 15, it's encouraging because the woman does give a, an assent to these life-giving words of Jesus. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I might not thirst nor come to draw. And so she's kind of like Nicodemus there again, like still kind of on this mundane plane. Okay, yeah, I'll take a sip of this. And he was like, still not talking about real water, (laughs) you know? And so there's a little bit of a change of subject here because he wasn't talking about water. So he's going to go into a little bit deeper thing here and it's a good thing in fact what he's going to do is he's going to confront her in her sin okay rico tyson evangelist said there comes a point in any conversation in our personal evangelism that you'll need to press through the pain barrier you guys know this as you're sharing jesus with people and you just start out kind of light like hey hang out here often you know (laughs) Oh, yeah, what do you do for work? Oh, yeah, me too, you know, or whatever. Well, we work together, so I think you know what I do. Okay, um, you know, but as you're just still just like day after day or maybe minute after minute, you're just pressing on in the conversation, there comes a point that you've got to cross that line into awkward zone and ask them where they're at with Jesus. And sometimes, you know, it's just you got to be led by the Spirit on that, you know. Sometimes you just kind of, hey, you know, what's your your spiritual background you know or something sometimes you're just like hey who is jesus to you you know you just, just got to do it yeah there's never really like a right way you just got to make them wince it's really the goal just like you know once the wince happens or once the look of disapproval happens you're like we've done it now the rest of the conversation we it's already awkward and now we're into it you know and so he just he gets right into it and so pray about what that looks like in your next conversation Because Jesus does it right here in verse 16. 
He says to her, go call your husband and come here. Oh, whew. girl gets a little red in the face like, uh, I have no husband. And Jesus says, do you love how gentle he is here? He's not like, liar, liar, pants on fire, you know, hanging from a telephone wire. He says, you've well said you have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. In this you spoke truly. And so he crossed that line. He confronted her in sin in her life. And he's going to speak to her about, you, you know, you've been looking for pleasure in all of these places. All these men, you've resulted to just cohabitation. And I'm telling you, you're drinking from the wrong well. Drink of me. And the woman says, sir, verse 19, I perceive you are a prophet. I mean, you knew stuff about my life that no one would know. Our fathers worship, and so, but then she deflects a little bit, changes the subject. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now, there's a little bit of like cultural argument that she's kind of starting, but she also might just be saying, man, you called out my sin. I know I'm supposed to go make a sacrifice for my sin, so should I go to Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? Like, that would be cool, and it's also a possibility. Or she's deflecting him. We don't totally know. But verse 21, Jesus just says, you know what? Don't even worry about where you got to go to make a sacrifice. Believe me, madam, as he says, woman, he might be saying madam or madam, you know, it's just, it's a nice way to talk to her. Believe me, the hour is coming when you don't need to go this mountain in Mount Gerizim or to Jerusalem to worship the father. It's part of the new covenant of having the Holy Spirit and those living waters of him in us that we get to worship God, wherever we're at, we don't have to face toward Mecca. We don't have to go on a pilgrimage where we're at right here, right now, my bedroom, my closet, my workout room, my truck, horseback, motorcycle back, sewing machine back, whatever it is that you do, just throw the word back on it. And it's for you. Okay. (laughs) And, and you can worship and you can pray and you can love Jesus and you can commune with God. William Cowper wrote in the 1800s in a hymn called Jesus Where'er thy people meet. It says, there they they behold thy mercy seat. Where'er they seek thee, thou art found. And every place is hollow ground. Where'er thy people meet. Do it, try it. Where'er. Okay, no, don't do it. And then Jesus just, he he does a little theology and, and understanding God to her. He says, you worship what you do not know, and we know what we worship. Remember you Samaritans since a thousand years ago, like you began worshiping whatever the Assyrians threw at you, you worshiped it. It was all sorts of mixed idolatry. Lions came and ate you, lions and tigers and bears, right? And, and they had to ship a priest over to try to educate you on how to worship according to the, the scriptures and you still didn't worship correctly and in truth. You guys don't even know how to worship. The Jews... We know how to worship. We, we know by the prophets and the word of God, the scriptures, how to worship. Salvation is of the Jews. It's not only for the Jews, but it springs forth from the Jews. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such to worship him. So it doesn't matter where it matters how you're to worship from a 
regenerated, born again, full of living water state. And it's to be truthful. It's to be scriptural. It's to be biblical. But you've got to be born again and have this living water, the spirit inside you in order to worship God in a way that pleases him. Verse 24 says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It is a great verse for us as we come to worship, whether we're here at the church or at the park, no matter where we're at, we worship by the spirit and we worship by truth. Okay. But even more so, it's an evangelistic verse for a non-believer that they need to be born again. And if you came into this church today and you're not a Christian, like you're not pleasing God, no matter what you do by the works of your own strength, God is not pleased. God is pleased when you humble yourself and receive his way of salvation and drink deeply the drafts of the gospel and just let him forgive you of your sins and wash you clean and fill you with his person of the Holy Spirit so that you can live in power and strength. That is what pleases the Lord. And until you humble yourself and drink of the well that Jesus is speaking of today, there's no pleasure towards you from God. Only the wrath of God abides on you. So drink today. Drink deeply from Jesus. And the woman says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And so she's kind of like, this is awesome. I love, I've loved this time. I've loved our little chat, you know. But, you know, when Messiah does come, we'll just fact check, you know. It was like the Snopes of the day, okay? And Jesus says to her, I am Snopes. <laughs> says in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. I'm he. So we're going to have the worship team come back up. This is going to have to be a part two because we're going to see the response from the woman to Jesus next week and how the town was affected by this. But as we close out today, the message from Jesus to the Samaritan woman is so fitting and so applicable for us today. And maybe you might just fill in some bullet points of how you are like the Samaritan woman. There are, there's a whole list of reasons why Jesus wouldn't talk to you if he was only interested in outward appearance and pedigree and background and decisions that you've made or whatnot. But Jesus looks at you and he values you. He sees a soul. He sees someone created in his image. He sees someone worth dying for. And he's looking at you and he's saying, you know, all those things that you've been pursuing in life, you know how your career has been number one? You know how your family has been all that you live for? You know how your son or your daughter's athletic skill and getting into that university or getting that scholarship, that is what you've been consumed with? Maybe you've been living, you know, vicariously through your children in the way that you've pushed them into music or athletics or academics. And you just, you're consumed by that. Or pleasure, or sensuality, or immorality. 
You've been living for these things. That's where you think you find satisfaction. But that is idolatry. That is sin. That's the same curse from from the time of Adam and Eve where instead of loving relationship with God, they decided to take matters in their own hands, eat the fruit of the garden, and try to figure it out on their own. And it thrusts the world into condemnation and into hell. And so today the Lord is calling us to lay down our pleasure-seeking, lay down our desire for luxury, pleasure, that buzz, that swooning feeling as you're around him or her. Lay it all down. Come to him, the source of truth and life and hope, and drink of him. And if we do, We'll never thirst again. Spoiler alert, the woman is going to end up leaving her bucket at Jacob's well and running and telling everybody that she's drank from Jesus. That she has found true life and true hope. And today I hope that you would leave your bucket with all your little pleasures in it and realize that it's never going to be enough and run to Jesus today as we close in worship. Let's stand together. Right now, Lord, I know my bent towards sin. I know my default towards pleasure and hope and life outside of you. I know where my mind wants to go. I know where my body wants to go. I know where my pride wants to go. My pleasure sensors want to go. But if there's pleasure there, it's only temporary. Sin is pleasurable for a season. But it ends in death, Lord. And we just confess that right now. And even good things that we've we've loved. Of course, it's good to love our family. It's good to love our education. There's some good things there. Being athletic is a good thing. But Lord, we just confess today that we've been so led astray by making those good things into God's. We just want to lay them down before you and we want to come and and just drink of your life. We know that when we drink of the wells of this earth, we will thirst again whether it's tonight or tomorrow, maybe it's once an hour we'll want the craving again or once a week. But Lord, you satisfy when we come to you. And so if you're here today and you walked in and you're a non-Christian, right now I just encourage you to say, Jesus, I lay down my bucket that I've been filling up with filth and empty things. And I receive for the first time in my life living water from you, Jesus. Fill my bucket, fill my cup, fill me up, overflowing. Let me drink of your goodness. Let me drink of salvation. Wash away my sins. Dip me in the cleansing flow. Forgive me. Thank you for salvation. I grab on to eternal life today through you, Jesus. 
And I look forward to a life with you here and now. And maybe you are a Christian today and you came through those doors and you've been born again, but you've backslidden. You've fallen back into the muck and the filth of this world. You've left the never-ending flow of life from Jesus to drink again from the trash of this world. And you know you feel empty. You know you feel condemned. Even now the enemy's whispering in your ear, you're going to hell. Hell is what awaits you. The beautiful thing today is that Jesus offers forgiveness. Jesus is the one who says, I will heal your backslidings. Come to Jesus today. Come back to the waters. Come back to the fountain. Drink of him. Let him wash over you. Let him put in you that soul-satisfying spring that bubbles up into everlasting life. And drink of that again today by faith right now. Put your lips to the cup as we close in this song. Let's all sing out together.